Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Anise van Ingeland. Anise is Associate Professor of International Security and Law at the Cranfield Forensic Institute. Prior to joining Cranfield, Anise worked at the University of Exeter and also at SOAS. Her research interests predominantly look at the study of the relationship between international law and Islamic law with a focus on security and defense. And in particular, she has a niche expertise in Iranian affairs. Been really looking forward to speaking with Anise for a long time now, and I'm delighted that we got it in before the Christmas break. So Anise, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for having me, Simon. It's a pleasure, a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our, our chat. You're doing some amazing stuff, some really interesting um, intersectional um, lines of inquiry. So, uh, so I'm really looking forward to this. So am I. Great. So I normally start with this question of what got you interested in the politics of or the area of. But in your case, it's slightly trickier. So I'm going to try and say what got you interested in Iran and the intersection of law and Islamic law and security and defense and all of the wonderful things that you do. All right. So in my case, it's a little bit different because I was born into it. So I explain I'm half Iranian, half Belgian. So my father is Belgian and my mother is Iranian. Okay. Uh, And so when I was a baby, uh, my dad was a war reporter uh, and he covered a lot of countries, including actually the Islamic Republic of Iran. So he covered the Islamic Revolution of Iran and we were there during that time. I was actually on the barricades on my mom's back. I just don't remember any of it because I was a tiny baby. (laughs) Amazing. And so this is basically how I grew up. Uh, We were there for a while. And you might recall, if you look at history books, that at one stage, Ayatollah Khomeini threatened to close the borders. So my dad decided that it was better to actually leave the country, to not be stuck in the country. So we went back to Belgium. Right, okay. Uh, and so then I grew up in Belgium. We didn't go back to Iran. At least my mom, myself, and my brother. My dad used to go all the time because he covered the Iran-Iraq war. He was actually an embedded journalist uh, with the Iranian forces. Uh, He did some pretty cool stuff there. (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. Uh, And so I grew up in an Iranian environment and I actually waited until I was 18 years old to go back to Iran. But I was totally ready by then. So I was a student at INALCO, which is the equivalent of SOAS in France. And I was invited to go back on a special program of exchange that was basically uh, led by the Iranian authorities. Uh, and it was the first of its kind. It happened at a very special time. It was when Mohammad Khatami was uh, elected president. Mm-hmm. So I went there with a group of people coming from around the world. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, but I had already started working academically before. So when I was an Erasmus student uh, in Utrecht, we were asked to do something about the philosophy of the law. And I was like, well, I don't know much about the philosophy of the law, but I'm half Iranian. Can I use this? And the professor was like, well, there's not much done at the time. It was like that, at least on Islamic law. Uh, would you be interested in that looking at Iran? I was like, yeah. So for me, basically, when I took that trip um, in Iran at the age of 18, and then when a little bit later in Utrecht when I was 21, I suddenly, it suddenly like opened my eyes to like plenty of academic opportunities. Um, I waited until my PhD, though, uh, to really like fulfill that appetite. 
And interestingly enough, um, I wasn't sure I wanted to work on Iran at the time. I wanted to work on terrorism. Okay, so that's where the security side comes in. Exactly. So I did a lot of readings on that, prepared myself to do a PhD on that. Why Why terrorism? I, I want to come back to some of the other stuff, but um, but out of all of these things, with all of that sort of personal invested, uh, sort of emotional investment, why, where did terrorism come from? I saw a movie on Michael Collins. Right, okay. <laughs> on the IRA. I was fascinated by the RAA. Right, okay. Um, and that, as silly as that, uh, so it had nothing to do with Islam at the time. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the, the person who became my PhD supervisor, Olivier Roy, yeah. uh, Olivier Roy, I think you will say in English, uh, said, well, you can do either Iran or terrorism. I'm interested in supervising you either way. And then 9-11 happened. Right. Okay. So he came back to me and he said, look, everybody right now is doing a PhD on terrorism. Um, I'm not sure this is the best choice for your career. And I was like, well, how? okay, you know what? When I was at, in, in the Netherlands, I did that work on uh, Islamic law, Iranian law and human rights. Maybe it could turn into a PhD and that's how it got started, basically. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, well, we have to pick up on that because working with Olivier Roy must have been quite an experience, um, given uh, given the amazing work that he's done. But but let's just go back to your, um, your your trip to Iran at the age of eighteen, and you said, and he said that you you were ready for it. What, what do you mean by that? And, and tell us a bit about what it was like going back to the country of your birth after such a long time. Yeah, so what happened is because my dad was passionate about Iran, when you walked into my home as I was growing up, you would be like in Belgium and in Iran. I went to Catholic school uh, and I was the only mixed children there at the time. I think, I believe I was actually the first Belgo-Iranian child to be born. Oh, wow. I think. Okay. Okay. I don't have the certainty, but one of the first. Um, And... It was really, it was really nice because we were celebrating Christmas, but also Nowruz and all the Iranian celebrations. Yeah. So I really grew up in that kind of environment where everything was mixed. We also hosted a lot of refugees. So my mom, my mom became a translator. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes when refugees from Iran had nowhere to go, refugees from the war, she would actually host them at home. So I never actually learned Persian. Actively at that stage, it was passive. I was surrounded by Iranian culture and Persian language. Right, okay. So at the age of 18, when came the time to choose what I wanted to do, I actually wanted to become president of the French Republic, which is actually quite funny. Thinking about it, um, because I couldn't, by the way, because I was a child of the first generation. I was first generation of immigrant, actually, not second. Right. Uh, so announced that you can't, according to the constitution in France, I couldn't become president. Okay. Uh, so I went to what is called Sciences Po in France, l'Institut d'études politiques. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that because I wanted to be a politician, I failed the entrance exam by a couple of points and then ended up in law school. Because that's what happens here. When you don't get into Sciences Po, you go to law school. Right. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be so bored. And that's where my roots came back. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to go into Iranian studies at the same time. Uh, and so I actually credit my, my upbringing, actually, and 
that automatically me let, naturally led me to study this. And so when we were offered that opportunity to go to Iran, I was like really excited, but not afraid at all. It was normal for me. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived, I was just home. Right. And, and by home, you mean... What, what do you mean by, by home there? Oh, that's a very difficult question. I'm home Sorry. in Belgium. It's, it's, I think like children who, who are mixed understand this. Like I'm home in Belgium. I'm home in France. Yeah. Uh, because that's where my parents are based and that's where I studied. Uh, I'm home in the UK and I'm home in Iran. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about going home. It's about, I don't know, the smell, yeah. the look, the light, the colors. Everything is normal. Okay. Yeah. And you fit in, you know, you just fit in. Uh, what was quite funny is I didn't fit in that much because people would stop me in the street and be, are you Dora gay? Which in Persian means, are you too blood? Mm. Uh, because I obviously have Iranian features and white skin, so they could see I was mixed. <laughs> right, yeah. It actually really annoyed me <laughs> when they did that. Yeah, I can imagine. Because I really wanted to blend in, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so that, that I think that's what it means by home. And also the fact my family is there, my friends are there. I was never like a tourist or a foreigner. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I speak the language. So you go into the street, you go to a store, and you know exactly what to do and how to do it, if I may say. Sure. You know, when you arrive, like in like when I arrived in the UK, and sometimes still in the UK, I'm not exactly sure what I can or cannot do. I know um, the feeling, especially right now. But yes, I can imagine. Um, I can imagine for someone not not born here. Yeah. So I still get that from time to time. Right. Where I'm not sure I should be doing something culturally speaking, if it's wrong or not. Well, in Iran, I never had that feeling. Right. Okay. Sure. Sure. Okay. So that, that I guess, has a, a huge impact on you. Um, let, let's go to the, the PhD then, when, when this sort of personal and professional start to, to mix. And studying with Olivier Roy, what was that like? He's one of the, the huge names in the study of, of political Islam and, and all that comes with that. So, so what was it like? Well, he's brilliant. I mean, <laughs> a brilliant mind. Um, right. he, he, I don't know how he does it. He's always ahead of the curve. So whatever you read that he's, that he's written, like he's always ahead of the curve. And that's why I wanted to work with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thinks mile ahead of everybody. So working with him was also challenging because obviously he's a very busy person and very important person. Uh, so whenever I was with him for our meeting, he had very little time. And so it was about using that time to the best in the best way possible. Um, he guided me in a lot of direction that I did not necessarily take, which was sometimes challenging for him and for myself. Right. Uh, for example, he kept recommending a book. I was thinking about it the other day by Marcel, Marcel Gauchet. Okay. Who thinks a little bit uh, along the lines of, if you want, Samuel Huntington meets Francis Fukuyama, kind of. Okay. And I didn't feel it reflected law well enough because, of course, I was I'm coming from a legal background. Yeah. So that was, for example, one of the the elements that we were we discussed sources a lot. What what would be the best framework? And. A simple issue was with the title. Uh, would we use universality of human rights or universalism of human rights? So there was a lot of 
talks about details. Uh, and then I conducted an extensive field work at the time. I interviewed a lot of people from both sides, pro-governmental, non-governmental, civil society. And he really guided me through that as well because he had uh, finished a few years earlier his book on political Islam, right? Mm -hmm. So he had a lot of contacts as well. Uh, so it was also navigating those contacts, knowing that where he approached it from a political perspective, I would approach it from a legal perspective. So it was really, really interesting. Um, and then a bit later, he actually, so I studied at Harvard Law School and he came to present his book on the Ummah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where our path had diverged because he he was more still on political Islam, whereas I was really embracing my legal side there, working also with Frank Vogel, who was working at the time at Harvard Law School. Yeah. But it was an absolute fantastic experience to be supervised by him, uh, by, by Olivier Roy, because he's got so much knowledge. I mean, when he started talking during our meeting, it was just like, wow, that man knows so much. <laughs> and he would go in different direction. And I was struggling to catch up at the time as a student. There was someone else who reminded me, uh, who, was, who was quite similar in his approach, was Pierre-Marie Dupuis, who is an international law professor. He's now retired, but he was uh, at the European University Institute. And it's that kind of French academic approach where you're called an intellectual because you're able to go in so many different directions. So working with, with Olivia Hua was a privilege, basically. Amazing. So you went to Harvard after your, your PhD, is that correct? At the same time as my PhD. Okay, sure. And what was it that you did at Harvard with regard to your work? Was this something separate? Was it contributing to your PhD studies? I was actually recruited because of my work. Okay. Uh, they had they had had reunions, but no one working from a legal perspective and and human rights perspective. Uh, so that's why I got in uh, with several uh, financial grants, by the way. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, the reason why I applied there is because as I so I had finished with my first year of field work in Iran, where I lived in Iran at that that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, thanks to the French uh, government that were funding me and the Iranian authorities also gave me some funding. Um, and at that stage, I had realized that if I only worked the theory and used only the theory on universality of human rights, I would just come up to the same conclusion that big professors like uh, Jack Donnelly, for example, have, have, have reached, which yeah. is that universally needed to be maintained. But I felt that it was a little bit more complicated than this and that I needed to engage with Islamic law. Okay, so that's quite a departure from someone like Donnelly, and yeah, it's it's obviously something that that few international law scholars are able to do, which obviously means that what you're doing is super interesting and super important. But tell us about that that moment of of of, um, of shifting track then, because it's it's requiring a, a dramatic. Um, a dramatic epistemological and ontological shift, I guess, in your work. I was a bit desperate, actually. Okay. <laughs> I like how you phrase it because I was desperate at that stage after a year when I realized that. So what happened is that I went to a conference that was the Human Rights Conference in Rome, yeah. the holy city of Rome. Um, and I that's where I met Jack Donnelly. There was Eva Brems as well. And I listened to them. And, you know, because I was still a student, I was just observing. And I observed that 
dichotomy that you have that still exists, basically, where you have man-made human rights on the one end, mm -hmm. the principle of universality, and then divine rights on the other end, with two legitimacy, two different kind of legitimacies that don't reconcile. Yeah. And Mohsen Khadivar was there, and he was actually trying to do it, looking at slavery. And I was like, this, this is what I'm interested in. Okay. Fascinated by his talk. Yeah. Uh, he's now in the United States, and I was actually listening to him talking again a couple of days ago. Uh, and I was just like, I wish I could tell you that it's because of you that I shifted my views. Um, and so at that stage, I actually went back to a theorist that I had encountered earlier. I had printed this article and put him on the side because I thought it was not relevant for me. And that is Abdullah Yal Nahim at Emory University. Okay. And he was proposed, so in his theory, he's explaining how we can interpret Islamic law in a more modern way and that has an impact on human rights. And that's where I was like, oh my God, like Mohsen Kadivar's work is actually matching that of An Naim. An Naim is working from a Sunni perspective, Kadivar is working from a Shia perspective. I need to reconcile them. And uh, then I was like, okay, I need to do Islamic law. That's how, it, that's how it started. <laughs> So just tell us a little bit about about the study of Islamic law in the context of where you're coming from then. Um, yeah. Given that it's it's maybe not something that, that a lot of our listeners will have encountered in any great detail, what is it that, that they need to know? Okay, so I started by studying Sunni Islamic law at Harvard mm -hmm. Law School with, um, as I said, Frank Vogel. And... I sometimes realized that I was struggling understanding what he was talking about, but that's all because I had already done a year of research that was about Shia law. Mm. So the first thing that people should really realize is that when you do Islamic law, you're going to choose one path. Uh, it's going to be Sunni or it's going to be Shia. And then within it, you're going to endorse a school, for which for me is the, the 12 verse, because Iran is Shia 12 verse. And that it's going to be very difficult to think outside of that box afterwards. And so in my teaching, I'm completely able to deliver 90% Sunni, 10% Shia to the students. I can make the distinctions. But in my writing, I constantly have to remind myself, wait a minute, are you writing for a Shia audience, for a Sunni audience? Don't mix them. I made some mistake right. at the beginning of my career. If you go back to some of my earlier articles where I'm mixing Sunni and Shia which I'm very embarrassed about. Um, so that would be one thing that I would like to tell people if they want to embark on, that, on, embark on that road. The second is, you need to go to a Muslim country, whichever one you want to get the expertise in, yeah. and spend time there. So I interacted with scholars from Mashhad, from Om. Uh, I was even invited, actually, to stay and graduate there to become a Moshtahed. Wow. <laughs> That would have been fun, uh, but I, was, I wanted to finish my PhD. And it's actually the kind of of training that is required if you want to fully engage with Islamic law. So I'm, I'm sometimes a bit puzzled by people who engage in Islamic law late in their career um, and don't necessarily understand the stakes. It's a complex legal system. Mm -hmm. that requires knowledge in history, in philosophy, and in so many other topics. Um, and it's, look, it's been, I've been doing it for 20 years, and I still discover new things 
Um, so yeah, that's what I would recommend. To well, do. it's not surprising the the complexity and the challenge of it, or the depth of it, or the fact that you're you're still discovering new things. Um, doing my homework for this for this podcast, your your work on Islamic law covers so so many different topics, um, so many different facets of, of Islamic law and debates with with um, international human rights law, um, family law, huge, huge um, scope in terms of the types of things that you're doing. So it's hardly surprising the, 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 the challenges that you face. Um, I'm, I'm really curious, though, because aside from the, the relationship with, with international human rights law or lack of relationship or um, influence of one upon the other, even if it's subconsciously in our own engagement with um, Islamic law. Islamic law is also a product of time and space, as you say. Um, and you have this, this focus on Iran. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the role of Iran in the construction of, of Shia Islamic law, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a major one, actually. Yeah. So let's let's go to something that's current. Let's go to the GCPOA. Mm-hmm. So very few people who are involved in the negotiation of the GCPOA from the non-Iranian side are actually aware that under Shia Islamic doctrine, using weapons, uh, nuclear weapons, or any type of weapons that doesn't discriminate between civilian and combatant is actually haram. It's prohibited. So this is entirely about deterrence. Yeah. So Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Khamenei actually wrote fatwa about it. And they said, look, if we want to use it for deterrence, that's fine. And that influences the way you negotiate the GCPOA. It means that the Iranians are not there to discuss the nuclear per se. They're there to discuss how strong they are and how strong they can be regionally, you see. And this is where we need to understand that the law plays a really important role in the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's part of, it's one of the tools, it's part of the toolbox for the legitimization of the regime, of the system that exists there. Uh, and the variety, the richness of Shia Islamic law, because we can interpret a lot in a various a, a lot of ways. For example, uh, we are the only Muslim country that allows surrogacy. Uh, and this, this richness um, could go wrong if it wasn't organized by the Marja'i Taqlid, so the leader of interpretation, that is Ayatollah Khamenei. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all these elements, all these legal elements, you could say, oh, this is the law, I'm not interested in this when I negotiate the GCPOA. Actually, you need to, because it's one of the cornerstone of the existence of the Islamic Republic of Iran, this rich production of interpretation coming from the scriptures that would say what you can and what you cannot do. And that's what the regime uses to justify every single political move. Sure. So, some might then take the view, and this is not what I'm advocating, of course, but some might take the view that religion is just a fig leaf for, for regime interest, and it's just a sort of an instrumental tool to legitimize. But that's, that, that misses the point of what you're saying. It misses something fundamental. It is actually an interesting point to make, Simon, because it 
could it be understood differently as religion is so inherent to what you say that every aspect of religion becomes part of your political discourse? Because if you think about it from a historical perspective, look at the Prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. He was a religious leader, a political leader, a legal leader, and strategic leader at war. He was all of it. Yeah. And therefore, what we try to do now, especially in the 20th and 21st century, we try to emulate that kind of leadership, meaning that when you act at the legal level, it has an impact on all other levels. So it's all intricated in the Islamic Republic of Iran that religion is not so much of an excuse, that the reason why you're still fighting. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a different way of seeing it, but I, I'm not like, I, I think your view is also valid. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not in any way trying to dismiss religion purely to, to pure instrumental um, readings, of course. I think that, mm-hmm. that would be problematic. No, no, yeah, yeah. no, 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 none of us, none of us would do that because we both work in region where we understand the weight of uh, religion. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I'd like to just go back to the JCPOA briefly, if I may, and I'm conscious we've been going for a while and, um, and you have places to be and foods to eat and things like that. But if I can just ask one final question about this JCPOA, uh, you've, you've talked about the, the fatwas from, um, from Khomeini and Khamenei about nuclear weapons and their, their um, sort of role within... I don't know if I should say nuclear doctrine or, or defensive posturing, but I wonder if you could just elaborate just briefly about what um, what impact those fatwas have in the discussions in Vienna. Because you've talked that it has an impact, but I wonder if you can just elaborate a little bit more, please. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for, for giving me this opportunity, actually. So I explain. This principle of deterrence, first of all, comes from Islamic criminal law. So the Prophet very soon realized that if there were to be bad apples within his community, his community would perish. Mm -hmm. So he had to be really careful about how he he would treat the bad apples. And he, um, well, he, according to the scriptures, following the scriptures and the word of God, uh, punished people who were bad apples in a very harsh way uh, to deter everyone else from committing criminal action. So deterrence is really at the heart of Islamic law. Um, So when those fatwas come up, they're not coming up out of the blue. There is a trail of thinking here that goes through centuries with the principle of deterrence coming from Islamic criminal law and the principle of distinction between civilian and combatants coming from humanitarian principle in Islam and the two coincide. And the legitimacy to this fatwa come from their position within the Islamic Republic of Iran, but also century of thinking, which means that if tomorrow another leader comes up and wants to change the perspective on Europe, of Iran on the use of nuclear weapons and say, yeah, now we're going to use them, well, that's going to require an entire shift about what the Islamic Republic is and what the law is in mm-hmm. terms of the Islamic Republic is, what role it plays. So when I when I actually discuss this, uh, when I brief people on this in governments or armed forces, I explain like, yeah, there could be a leader tomorrow that comes up and says, well, we're going to use the nuclear weapon. But the question is, how are you going to justify this stream of fatwas that's built on centuries of expertise and interpretation? How are you going to break away from this 
without destroying the Islamic Republic of Iran? The answer is simple, you can't. You can't break away from those fatwa. So those fatwas actually have weight because of their history, the history of interpretation that's there since the time of the Prophet. Mm-hmm. That's really, really fascinating and really, really interesting. We could talk so much more about this, and I hope that we will get the chance to do so at some point. There's so many parts of your research that, that we've not managed to get onto today, but I do hope that we will have opportunity to do so in the not-too-distant future, and perhaps, dare I say, in person. But for now, and I say a huge thank you for your time today. I've really enjoyed chatting, and uh, it's been really, really insightful, really provocative stuff. Thank you very much, Simon. I had fun. Thank you. I'm pleased to hear. A huge thank you to Anise for her time just now. I've really enjoyed talking with her and there's a great deal to reflect on. You can find her on Twitter at A-N-I-C-E-E-V-E. That's at Anise V-E. Do give her a follow and check out her work. As always, a huge thank you for taking the time to listen. Please do like, share, comment, subscribe, etc., etc., etc. I feel very silly saying this all the time, but apparently it's, uh, it's obligatory for all podcast hosts to do so. Otherwise, the podcast police will come around and, uh, and slap us on the wrists. But in all seriousness, it does matter, apparently. I'm just not entirely sure why. But we'd appreciate it anyway. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time.